Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes is Jack Garrett to talk about how he recorded and produced the album Love, Death and Dancing. Jack Garrett is a singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist from Buckinghamshire, England, who grew up playing a variety of instruments from the guitar, drums and piano to mandolin and trombone. He started writing and performing from an early age and with his first ever song reached the finals of the UK national selection for the Junior Eurovision Song Contest in 2005. Initially attending university to train as a teacher, Jack dropped out to focus on music, landing a record deal with an independent label. Dissatisfied with his musical direction though, he started again and in 2014 released his debut EP Remnants. The combination of his adventurous music and powerful live performances created great excitement in the music industry and across the media, also earning him a support slot on Mumford & Sons UK tour. After finishing touring phase at the end of 2016, a second album was started but scrapped, and off the back of this, Jack took time off to deal with the anxiety and self-doubt brought on by the pressure of acclaim. Re-energised by the break and initial home demos, he decided to meet with producer Jackknife Lee, and this led to what would become his second album, Love, Death and Dancing. Today, once again due to lockdown, I'm at home in Morden, South London, and Jack joins me from his home in East London. And what better way to start that conversation than by hearing something from the record. This is Mara. I came to be here in the garden I came to walk alone To hear the quiet conversation Between my footsteps in the stone I came to find some self-acceptance I came searching for my truth But something's telling me to go where It's far too dark to look It is Jack Garrett with Mara from Love, Death and Dancing. And I'm very pleased to say that somewhere in the world, connected remotely, is the man himself. Hello, Jack. Hi. (laughs) So where are you, Jack, now? Uh, I'm at home in a a house I'm uh, renting in East London uh, with my wife and our housemate and my dog. Um, We've been here, obviously, for quite a while, as everyone else has been already in their homes for quite a while. Yeah, and you're surrounded by equipment, I understand. Yes. And is this where a lot of this album was written? Actually, no, it wasn't. I moved around quite a lot when I was making this record for no other reason other than just life happens like that sometimes. Um, We were living in Chicago, which is where we, we moved while I was still touring the first album phase. And then once that kind of all wrapped up at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, we moved to Chicago and um, had already been living there for about a year Um and then stayed there for another year and a half, came back to London. And I actually made the bulk of the demos for this album in the shed uh, in the back of a garden of another house, a little apartment I was renting um, somewhere else in East London, in Clapton. 
yeah, which was yeah. absolutely amazing. I had this tiny little green shed that was being used as an office by my landlord who was living there previously. And then I just gutted the whole thing out and turned it into a makeshift music studio. <laughs> my neighbours <laughs> love me. They <laughs> <laughs> How soundproof was that shed then? Mm. Is zero an amount? I'm pretty sure it was zero <laughs> amount soundproof. We actually had, it's a really funny story. I uh, I have these drum skins with my name on them from when I was doing the first album tour. So I've got a big like kick drum skin that has my logo on it. And uh, I remember getting it out of my lockup when I went to go and get all of my equipment when I was putting my shed together. And I hung it up on the wall in my studio thinking like, yeah, that's just like a nice thing. And I didn't know I would ever in my life be able to have a drum skin with my name on it. And it might be the most rock and roll thing I've ever done. Um, so yes, I'm going to put it up on my wall. And then that very same night, my wife texted me from the house saying that she could hear our upstairs neighbours playing my music. Um, and they were just going through listening to the first 10 seconds of my top five played things on Spotify. So I think they must have looked through the window, seen the logo in the shed and gone, all right, then what's all this about? Um, and had a little listen, <laughs> which was quite funny. So I definitely started turning it down from that point on. <laughs> <laughs> or buying some curtains so they couldn't look through. <laughs> yeah, the actually, that would have no. been the smarter thing to do. (laughs) So that's interesting. I was curious because I wondered whether um, you were still in the shed, but you're not at the moment. Not in the shed, no. I've been quarantined to the second bedroom in this very lovely house that um, that we're living out in, uh, yeah, in East London. Excellent. So uh, Mara, the track we just heard, was part of the first volume that you put out from Love, Death and Dancing. So you've been releasing the record in volumes of three tracks at a time. And one of the other songs that was part of that initial taste of the record was Time, which is the opening song on the album. And that's the first song we're going to be talking about today. And I was really blown away when I first heard this song and, and when I first saw the video as well, because, you know, we hadn't heard much from Jack for a while at this point and then you came back kind of all singing all dancing in effect <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so, sounds like me doesn't it <laughs> well I mean, it, it is you nowadays and and but it was it was absolutely fantastic and it's such a great track and thank you i'm amazed because you're going to explain to us today that the demo that we're going to hear of time yeah. and how much of the finished version was created at a demo stage, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I thought this would be a really interesting avenue to walk down to get to time as a song, because very rarely do I get an opportunity to talk about this. This is the creative process for me. Like I produce and mix my demos or my songs, if they end up becoming that, kind of at the same time. Like I remember on the first album on Phase, one of the singles was a song, Breathe Life, which I wrote and I produced and I mixed all in about a week. And that's not me showing off. I think the quality of the song actually probably does replicate the very limited time I spent working on it. But I worked on it for that period of time because that's the time it took me to get it to a place where I was really immensely proud of it. And I remember sending it off to um, Mike Spencer. That's the man. Fantastic producer, a really amazing uh, mixer. He mixed the singles on the first album, uh, Weathered and Surprise Yourself. And I sent him Breathe Life, the one of the singles we were putting out and he very sweetly sent a note back saying I would change this one thing on this snare and other than that I don't think there's anything else I could do and it was a really overwhelmingly confidence boosting moment for me as a young budding producer but it really showed that the amount of detail the amount of work that I must put into these demo making processes um I don't think I'm fully aware of the fact that they can end up being things that are listenable for other people. So Time, I think, is actually a really good example of that because I ended up taking this demo and a bunch of demos for the album to a producer in California, an amazing producer originally from Ireland, a guy called Jack Knife Lee. 
Um, and time is the first song that we worked on together. And our process kind of ended up being, I would sit there with a laptop plugged into a little jack that was plugged into his speakers. And I would play him the demos of these songs. And when we found one that we liked, I'd bounce everything down from my demo and we'd load it back up into his set. Uh, so I was, I think I was using Ableton at the time he was using Logic. So we'd open everything up in Logic and mix it again to make it sound like my demo and then start adding things from there. And a lot of the things from this song, in particular, the open opening synth, which is this little sequential synth thing, um, which sounds like this. This is exactly the same as it is on the recording. And this is, this is a soft synth, this is a plugin that I just, I think I remember I bought it that day. It's by Arturia, it's their Buchler Easel um, plugin. And I remember just playing around with it and trying to find some interesting sounds on it, came up with this thing, put it into a 16-step sequence, bounced that audio down and just looped it around for 10 minutes and tried to figure out how to get a song from it. But this, as you can hear, is exactly the same as it is on the, on the recording. I think I've got the recording down here, actually, that I can compare and contrast it to. Yeah. So we cleaned it up a bit. My mixes are very often muddy and thick and warm. I think it might have been the shed, but it's also possible that my ears are just very much tuned into that sort of um, tape-saturated sonic uh, space. So you can hear like the difference, the clarity that we ended up bringing out of that thing. But we didn't, you know, we didn't reamp it. We didn't re-record it. We didn't try and find it on another synth. Jackknife was very, very willing for it to just be, oh no, the sound is there and it's good. We'll just tweak it and make it work. Yeah. But when I was in the shed, yeah, the rest of the song kind of fell out of me as soon as I had that opening synth part down and ready to go. That is amazing. And it's intriguing to know. So you've got that part. How does your brain work that these suddenly build up all these different things that go with that you know and create the song do you come up with a a few words or do you come up with uh, something that you think would be a nice sonic contrast to that sound that you've already created well i very rarely do lyrics first i find lyrics really hard i think a lot of that is actually steeped in a lot of self-uncertainty and lack of confidence in my lyric writing which is something I've actively tried to improve for this record I've actively tried to be way more honest on this record and talk about things I really care about um, which I did do on the first record but I made sure that my lyrics on the first album were laced with more of like an abstract sense so that I mean, I think the reason I think I did that was to try and open more doors for people to listen to. I'm, I was very aware at the time the notes I was getting back from my music from, you know, journalists and critics and fans alike was that it's all very different and from each other, that no two songs sound the same. And I was aware of that and I'm proud of that sound. I'm proud of being able to define myself as a hard to define artist. But I wanted, therefore, to make sure I was doing what I could to not alienate an audience, to not shut doors, but instead open them. But lyrics are something I find really hard to do. They take me a long time. Um, I procrastinate when I'm writing them. I just can't sit down and do it. So, so the thing that always spurs me on is feeling a moment and writing it for as long as I can. And when that moment dies down and it gets to the shore, I don't try and swim back out and find it again. I sit on the shore and I just let the moment go until I'm out there again and I'm ready to catch a new one if that makes sense I don't force myself to finish an idea just because I think I like it I very much keep myself to a strict routine of enjoying it and the minute I stop enjoying it I stop altogether and I'll wait you know it could be the next day I'll you know ride that same wave of inspiration again it could be another month it could be another year this song time 
like I said earlier, it fell out of me. And Mara did as well. They, they were both songs that I, I built Sonicscapes first and then chords happened. I think my ears are very good at talking to my hands and I try not to get in the way of that conversation. And when I allow those two things to speak to each other, I find that the first idea is often the best one. So I've just got here, I've soloed out that synth part again. Mm. And this is a little further in the song, but this is when the guitar riff first comes in. So the guitar riff is on my demo. It's the same riff that's on the on the track. We did re-record it for the album version. Um, but the guitar riff was the first thing that I played. I had that synth part going around. I built it up with a couple of other little um, ambient feeling things just to kind of... Um, you know, stir the creative juices, I guess. But the thing that sold it for me and the minute I knew I had a good idea was when the guitar riff came in. And that was that, like I said, I, I had the guitar in my hands. I had the, the booklet easel thing going round on that 16 beat loop, uh, step loop, sorry. And I picked up a guitar and I played that riff and luckily, my phone was recording on voice memo. Otherwise, I would have lost it forever. <laughs> um, and that's and that's where the song came from. The melody came next. I tried some lyrics. They were pretty dumb. But the thing I did in one day was I got the structure of time down with just the sequence synth, a dummy vocal take, and the guitar, and a couple of additional percussive drum elements. Um, I think inspiration hit at maybe midday, and by 10 o'clock in the evening, I had a demo that I could work from. Yeah, amazing. So um, in terms of the percussion bits that you started to add, yeah. where did you begin with that? So I I don't really know. I don't really know. Uh, the, <laughs> the, I, I, I knew that what I was writing was a song that sounded very different to anything I'd written before. Like the, the nostalgia that you feel from, or at least the nostalgia I felt from these sounds was very unlike something I'd done before. I mean... In this demo, I didn't have my melody, I didn't have my, my lyric idea or anything like that. I was just trying to build an audio world that made me feel warm. And percussion and rhythm makes me feel so good. And I wasn't quite ready to feel good yet when I was doing this, when I was in this <laughs> beginning stage. I still wanted to feel like I was hacking away at like overgrowth and vegetation. And, and I just kept hacking away, trying to find that warmth. And so a lot of the percussion that ended up coming was in an act of trying to kind of do that. The percussion actually in this song doesn't hit until way later on. The kind of closest thing I've got to it looking at it now is there's more noisy sequence synths kicking in later on that sound like this. This is, I'm pretty sure, the exact same pattern as the sequencer. I've just taken all of the oscillators out and only left the filter on and the um, and the noise underneath it. So if I play it at the same time as the booklet easel. Yeah, it's the exact same pattern happening in the same rhythm, um, happening with all the same velocity and everything. It's just this one underneath it is a... It's a tension builder. It's it's yeah. it's trying to create more of a landscape for the song to kind of just sit in. And the rhythm of this song, I had so much fun arranging. Um, so the drums, when they come in, they come in at the exact same time as they do on the recorded version. So I've um, taken solo off so that you can hear everything. So this is coming out of the first chorus going into the second verse, and you'll hear all the drums come in. And again, it sounds so different to the proper album version, but all of the elements are there in this demo. 
unmute the vocal. So that that kick, dun, 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 like that's in there. We've got a new synth pattern that's coming now, a percussive synth pattern, which is just adding a little bit more syncopation that's kind of uh, hinting to more of a dance party that might be coming up, but everything's still very, it's very restrained. It's rocking into itself rather than coming out full force with like a four on the floor, hey, aren't we all having a good time? Like the 808 group that I've got here is literally just going... Just a really simple, slowed down 808. Um, oh, what kind of groove is that? It's not a samba groove, it's a, it's a bossa. So the 808 in this song and the pattern that it's doing is so important to the energy that gets released slowly from this point, which is from the second verse, through to the build when the trombones come in later on. So it starts off with this first rhythm which we've already established, which sits underneath the song like this. Just giving that sort of sway to everything. Cut to later on in the second verse, when we start to amp up a little bit of energy. Four on the floor comes in. So the kick has now doubled its pattern and the hi-hat's now about to start doing something more rhythmic and complicated. Oh, sorry, there's a little um, a rim shot thing coming in. Or a, uh, what do you call it? I can't remember, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you, if you listen to this, all of these different little glitchy moments, these syncopated rhythms, this is me playing in live. And if you hear it in context of the song, we're in a point now where the bass has started to syncopate a little bit. We've got lots of drones, we've still got lots of like ethereal moments, but the thing that's driving it, again, that drip feeding of energy. The hi-hat has now started to join in to do something else rather than doing the... Um, it's... So I sat there and I'm looking at the take now. There's no cuts in it. I did a full take of different rhythms and stuff like that. And I just built it up myself and felt the energy from the track. And again, there's a difference between the rhythm making me feel warm and safe and then the rhythm making me feel good. And what I wanted to do was really blend those two emotions together. And I felt the only way that I could do that was to just manually play everything myself, which is exactly, exactly what I ended up doing for the 808 part. I mean, it's really interesting because when the drums do come in, you know, it is a big Phil Collins type moment. But it's interesting how you built the track so much that you've kind of almost subconsciously worked on the listener and um, preparing them for this moment. And it's yeah. And it's such an intentional thing as well. Mm. And again, it's 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 for me to put that work in. It's not for the audience to put that work in. I put the work in to make all of those details make sense so that when the release does happen, it's as euphoric as it can possibly be for the audience. And I think that's one of my biggest, that's one of my most important jobs as a musician and as a producer, is to not worry about whether people will notice the details, but to put them in there anyway, because the effect they have on the end goal, on the song, is, is everything. 
Yeah, very much so. So yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to work out how we're going to do that reveal, how we're going to do, do that, that build and then the sudden <laughs> drop. Yeah. What's the best way? Well, I mean, from here, from where the 808 has then started to change its rhythm, it starts to also let go of its responsibility. It's no longer the thing that's driving everything through because at this point, as I was making it, I was feeling good. You know, I wasn't feeling warm, I was feeling good. So I started bringing in some live drums and I started bringing in a 909 I've got in here. The, yeah, the mini Moog bass comes in and starts to really like amp up the energy. So this is a little Prophet bass that's doing the drone underneath it, added with a mini Moog VST that's doing the syncopated stuff, the dancey stuff. And again, putting the 808 underneath that sounds like. With the noisy sequence synth that we had earlier. The original sequence synth from beginning. Putting in the guitar riff. What I've added in here as well is a synth brass part that acts as a drone for the first like half of this build and then starts to open itself up. New notes, new chords, new rhythms. And all of that with... with a melody that just repeats itself. I wanted it to feel lost in its own time. You know, I, I know it's a very easy thing to say because of the context of the song, the lyric of the song, but like I said earlier, I didn't have lyrics, I did have a melody and I did have a hook and the hook was time is on your side. I knew that that's where I needed to get to. The way that the song was asking me to make it by just lengthening it out and drawing it out, just new waves overlapping each other. I remember adding more to it. I remember thinking at one point, this goes on for too long. I need to shorten it. And a little voice in the back of my head went, or make it even longer and make a point of it. And that's what I decided to do. I added like another four bars into it. So there's a point, And I remember it happened to me every time I listened to that demo, I would come up to a point and I'd go, oh yeah, this is when the trombones come in. And then they didn't. And there'd be a whole other like four, eight bar section of it building in more interesting and enjoyable ways. And again, that's what I meant earlier. It means that when the trombones do come in and it explodes, it just makes it so much more enjoyable and so much more tangible. Yeah, wow, amazing. It would be great to hear the point where you thought, oh, well, it could happen there, but then you thought, no, it's going to happen later. So to hear that delay. So it's about halfway through when the trombone starts. So I, in my shed with my trombone and my one microphone that I use for everything, uh, decided to sit down and actually put some trombones on a song. Uh, I've played trombone since I was a kid, but I stopped playing when I left school because I no longer had to. Um, and I picked it up for this song because I thought, well, I can play it. I should play it. Let's see if I can remember how. So about halfway through the build, the trombones come in, the real ones. And at this point, the synth brass has been doing all of the harmonic work. So that's the synth brass. That's again, just me on the Prophet, the Archeria Prophet, I think it's the V3, which I absolutely love. And I use a lot. I'll play that part again. And this time I'll play it with the trombones and you can hear how they start to kind of creep in. (laughs) 
so they just start to hint in the background that they're going to be something. It was at the point when the trombones came in every time that I was like, I've, I could end it here. I could absolutely ramp it up enough to be able to just get away with, you know, I can give it away now. Like, I'll play that same moment without the trombones and with everything else. So bearing in mind, we've been building already for... <sighs> 34th like bars or something I could have dropped it there but I added two more on <laughs> with the trombones and then this is the build coming up here into the end bit now again, you can hear how absolute trash those trombones sound because I did them on an SM7 <laughs> in my shed, but we ended up using them. We actually ended up using that take on the album version. Um, they had such a unique sound and they're so woolly and so, like my breath control was awful. I remember like panting after every take because I just had, I had zero breath control anymore. But again, like I said at the beginning, we bounced everything down and sent it to the project that Jackknife and I then worked from. And I remember I kept expecting him to mute them and every time we played it, he just wasn't muting them. And so then we added some other synths, some other trombones and stuff. And then I was like, well, now he has to mute them and he still didn't. And for some reason, it means that on the actual drop when it happens, you hear a couple of synth brass parts that I played on some like DX7s and stuff. And then I played some more trombones to get some brighter ones because he had better microphones. But there, you know, grounding it all in, an, in a really earthy, muffly tone is my shed. <laughs> So that bit we just heard, that that's pure shed. <laughs> that's mostly pure shed. Yeah. And uh, and funnily yeah. enough, the name of my next album, uh, Pure <laughs> Shed. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. So you bounce that all down at uh, Jackknife Lee's place in LA. Yeah. And he must try and work out then what his role is, apart from polishing something. You know, <laughs> he's got to try and work out with such a, a well-realised demo do I now bring the trombone section I know who live down the road and get them to do all that again? <laughs> or do I just go with these woolly shed recordings? Now, that's quite a kind of big decision, but he was doing this instinctively in a similar way to you, yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I think that's the reason why we ended up working so well together. Something that he taught me to do and what his main role ended up being when we were working together was encouraging me to find ways to share the spotlight of what I was making. So what that meant is I'm very, I think I'm very good at making horizontal sounds, like big, wide, sonic scapey kind of things. And what he made me very aware of and what he tried to teach me and successfully did so, I think, is to lean into sharing the spotlight. So if you're in that moment, for example, in the drop, when the trombones come in and they go, dun-dun-dun, the spotlight isn't necessarily on them. They're just the only thing playing. And his whole point was you have to give them the spotlight if they're asking for it. But that means taking it away from whatever might have been using it before. And just because the trombones have the spotlight in that moment doesn't mean they're going to have the spotlight for the rest of the song. And essentially, what he means by that is just thinking about sound as horizontal and lateral, introducing lateral components uh, to the arrangement. 
or making more lateral moments of the lateral moments that were already there. So for my demo, a lot of that was in the drums and in the trombones, creating these like spikes of energy in something that's actually quite wide feeling. And it was such an amazing lesson that he ended up teaching me. And it's something we applied to everything. I think also at the time when he taught me that lesson, I was very much in a pessimistic way of thinking about my art and myself. And I was bringing him all of this stuff, apologizing, going, I'm sorry, there's so much information. And he was like, that's good. We can use as much of it as we need. We just have to make sure that we use it right. And hearing someone talk about it like that was really great because I think I've only really had people talk about my music when it's busy as if that's a, as a bad thing. And I've always really loved that. I've always really loved that my music is busy and full of information. He just taught me how to showcase it in a better way. Yeah, very interesting. Um, because so often when we're talking here on Take Notes, you know, we hear about how you know people build things up and then strip away to get to the bare bones. And you know, that's partly going on here, but it's, it's more of a you strip away to highlight something and then you bring it back to continue the good work that you've done to create this whole feel and this tension. So in terms of the mood, I mean, you, you were also playing hard on yourself in that you wanted to feel mm. warm, you wanted to get to feeling good, you yeah. wanted to combine those feelings at the same time. Yeah. How would you describe where you've taken us so far? Are we now feeling good once you've done the drop? Or is it going to, you know, are you still thinking about a point that you want to get us to? I think I'm always thinking about a point to get you to because I don't want to plateau somewhere. I don't want to, I don't want to spend all of this time creating attention only to then plateau higher rather than plateauing lower like I'd, I'd much rather just keep that tension building and building and building and building until the song stops and the only way that you can live through that energy again is to listen to the song again that's another part of my job i think as a producer is to make a piece of music that is listenable multiple times my favorite producers make music that surprise me on the 13th listen as much as they surprise me on the first and i try to implement those same thoughts or at least subconsciously I attempt to implement those same that same way of thinking with my music so yeah so the build happens and the trombones come up but after that everything stops and you just get a couple of rounds of of this it could end here but it doesn't goes on for another one Then it ends. Like the party doesn't have to stop just because the music has. Mm. And I think that for, for this song in particular, for what it's about, the concept of the lyric, time is on your side. The song is about me being too hard on myself and feeling scared about the fact that I was complimented so much as a child that it makes me feel like I can't live up to an expectation that I was given now that I'm an adult. But that time is on my side, that there is always more time in which I can attempt to do more and attempt to improve myself and attempt to better myself or attempt to accept myself. I think all of the conscious choices I've made and the subconscious choices I've made in the arrangement and the production of this song, all of them fundamentally go back to that core value. And they all treat the song with that sort of patience. Like, why not keep going? Why not go for another minute? Why not go for another round? Why not put the drums in there again? It has made cutting it down to a radio edit a really difficult job. Mm. But at the same time, I was able to do that too because I applied the same, the same fundamentals. It needs to feel lost in its own time and it needs to allow the audience an element of surprise it's got to give a full sense of security not in a way that means the rug will ultimately get pulled out from the audience but instead the just when you didn't think the hug could get tighter 
here it comes. So, I mean, it sounds like before you'd ever spoken to Jackknife Lee, you had a really strong idea of what you were trying to achieve with this particular song and this this piece of music. And then when you went to Jackknife Lee and started working together, what did you say to him in terms of what you wanted him to do for you, as it were? It's funny. It's funny because I, I know I sound very sure of what I wanted the song to be when I'm talking about it. But at the time, I didn't know what I wanted. I, I say this with honesty and with no attempt to guilt trip anyone into making me feel better. This was literally what I, I thought this was like the worst song I'd ever written and the worst demo I'd ever done. 100%. I re- and I didn't know what I was doing with it. And I took it to Jackknife and it was his confidence in it that brought my confidence out. And he's absolutely responsible for for the change in my uh, attitude about myself because he listened to music that I was so hateful for that was mine that I'd made. And he sat there and told me I was an idiot, that it was great in a way that came through as absolutely respectful. And it's not that our relationship then became, you know, therapist and client, but he very much took it upon himself to unapologetically compliment me when he felt I truly deserved it. And in the same respect, tell me when he didn't think something was the best that it could be. Because those are the things I think are really important. I think it's so important to be held accountable by your own tastes and to be held accountable by your own um, by your own expectation of yourself, just as long as that doesn't become the overriding compass that you follow. Like, I, I'm very hard on myself. I'm very aware of that. And I know I'm too hard on myself. Um, I find it hard to know when I'm being too hard on myself and when I'm being appropriately hard on myself. But I do believe in being a critic of my own art. I think it's the only way I'm going to find a really like unashamed and pure joy from the art that I make is to know that I've critiqued it. And I've gone, no, I know this can be better. And I think what I found in Jackknife was something I've found very hard to find in my career so far, which is another pair of ears that do that to me and for me and to my music. Um, It's the reason why I don't really work with other people. When I did this with Jackknife, we spent a couple of days not working on anything first before we ended up touching any of my music simply because I was so traumatised by um, some of the experiences I've had in the past. Um with working with other people on my music. And he was very respectful of that. But ultimately, like I said, it was the respect I felt from him and him being able to go. Like, I remember one of the first arguments we had was about this song and it was about whether or whether not the melody in time for the chorus should stay as it was in my demo or should change for what he was suggesting. And in the demo, the vocal does this. When time and then it goes when so it doesn't sound very different to what we did in the record version but the subtle difference is in, is instead of doing that where i go up and then down so i go uh, time is on your side and then the second time time is on your side and stay down there he suggested go up three times and then go down on the fourth and i remember being like no <laughs> absolutely not it's the hook that's the whole point of this bit is it's the hook it's the bit that people are going to remember and i remember it was one of the only arguments we had where i was unnecessarily stubborn and defiant And we tried it. And the minute I did the vocal take, my whole body went, he's right. This is brilliant. This is so much better. Such a subtle change, such a potentially unnecessary change. And it's made the difference in the song. 
my reaction, my initial reaction to be defensive came from, like I said, just the trauma I've experienced of having other people uh, dissect my work before to kind of what I believe is to personally attack me. And what he was doing was genuinely trying to help. And it took me a while to realise that. Mm. And so the vocals were recorded in LA then? Yes, they were. Yeah. And we changed the lyrics. We changed everything. Um, a lot of the cadence of my performance and the rhythm of the song was similar, but the lyrics we completely changed with my friend and my writing partner, my, my lyric writing partner, Henry Brill. Mm. And so um, I'm just trying to work out uh, what we hear as a difference between your demos, which are already sounding pretty complete <laughs> in some respects, but then you know the mastered version that Jack Knife Lee helped you create that we hear on the record. I mean, obviously, it sounds bigger, it sounds brighter, but it sounds like he also got to work on the song structure and th that aspect of, of getting the song to where it could go, you know, in terms of perfection, for want of a better word. Yeah, which is a dangerous word to want to use, especially with a song yeah. that's as detailed as this, because it's not perfect <laughs> at all. Like I said, we've still got those shed trombones. They're still in there somewhere. But I think like the biggest difference between the demo and the end version is the is the lyric and is the vocal. And, and it's funny that because... I hate doing vocals. I hate it. I hate writing lyrics. I hate singing in a studio. I hate doing vocals. But what Jackknife did encourage me to do was create a space for me to be way more vulnerable. Like if you listen to the vocal take of this demo, how aggressive and how hard it is. This, this is the first lyric pass that Henry and I did together. So there's some lyrics that are similar. There are some lyrics that are very different. But the attitude is so different to what I ended up doing on the, um, on the record. So have a listen to this. Mm. Why is it? To be fine. I'm so much more in the top of my throat. I'm trying way too hard to channel some sort of semblance of Tom Waits. It's, it's, oh, it's kind of embarrassing. But like, if you compare that to what the record sounds like. Why is it not enough? Immediately, I've opened my throat up. Mm. To be fine. I'm singing the song. I'm not performing the song. And that's a big difference. That's something that Jackknife really encouraged me to do. To, like, take a step back, breathe, think about what the song is about, think about why you're singing it. Don't perform it, sing it. A lot of the lyrics ended up kind of following suit as well. Like, I think the next lyric is on the demo is different to what we ended up doing. Why must you wait until there's dust? Yeah, why must you wait until there's dust to draw a line? To take your finger and draw the line. Yeah, it's somewhat over-elaborate unnecessary metaphor that is way easier to say and that's how we said it in the song we just said you're overthinking in a rut and terrified you're overthinking in a rut and terrified to list off the things that i was feeling such an easier way to say the unnecessarily elaborate metaphor of why must you wait until there's dust to take your finger and draw the line. Um, it's beautiful, lovely lyric. And Henry is a god when it comes to taking overly complex thoughts and feelings and then presenting them in lovely rhyming couplets. But what we ended up doing on the record is what Jackknife encouraged us to do, which is if you're going to be honest, be honest. Don't say you're being honest and then still be complicated. Bear yourself, be honest. And I, I think you can hear that in the vocal take and you can hear it in the lyric. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Um, we should hear a burst of the finished version of Time, I think, and yeah. then we can move on to another song. But it's absolutely fascinating hearing this work process and, and yeah. you know, this, both the intellectual side of things and the, the physical side of things, because it seems that you, know, you put an array of instruments in front of you, Jack, and you're happy as a sandboy and you're just kind of like, oh, let's, let's play. Yeah. And then you know, making that into a finished song and, and challenging yourself and being hard on yourself is the difficult stage for you, it yeah. seems to me. Yeah, it's the difficult stage for me, but it's but it's a necessary part that plays from the minute I sit down with an empty session in front of me to the minute I'm listening to a final mix. It's a tough thing and I need to be better at living with it. I need to f- find a better way to be nicer to myself. But I also don't want to get rid of the voice in my head that makes me want to be better. I always want to be a better producer, a better musician, a better artist. I think this song is a really good example of just how I can do that without really wanting to beat myself up too much but you know that's not going to stop me from trying to beat myself up too much <laughs> no it's great mm. if, we, if we get the music that we get from you because you beat yourself up then you know <laughs> I, I don't mind you bruising no <laughs> no i think i've just it's i can find ways of doing it really really well and i think i did do it well on this song i think this song fundamentally healed any hurt i might have done to myself by being a pure example of how And I'm going to give myself a compliment here, but how good I am at writing and producing songs. Um, And I very rarely say that. And that was very uncomfortable for me to say. But I think the proof is in the song. I love this song and I'm so proud of it. Fantastic. And we're going to hear the finished version and uh, maybe highlight uh, some of the things that, that you've been telling us, Jack. Yeah, absolutely. I'll play it from where the first chorus happens just before everything does start to, to build up. Here we go. When time is on your side When time is on your side So actually probably the first big change is these drums. I don't think these are on the original demo. And was that on a kit played in LA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was on the kit that that, uh, that Jackknife had in his um, studio. So all of these bits, I remember I did a really long take over the song of just hitting drums every now and then, and then Jackknife and I stitched them together into these little explosions of colour. Again, lateral moments, that's exactly what we were talking about earlier. Mm. And again, the structure of this, the way that all the music drops out, none of this was in the demo. This was all stuff that I brought. Once we'd got the song structured up and ready to go, we did like another couple of days on it, just messing around with with the way that it sounds. Um, we had a my favorite little trick. We had a, a bounce of the instrumental playing underneath it. We had it bust uh, playing underneath the mix at the same time and we had it like slammed on this limiter on this amazing uh, plugin called the Permutate. Um, and it's also got like a filter on it. And so that is just underneath this whole thing really subtly, just creating new waves of movement that you, you can't hear. If you took it away, you would notice a difference. Um, so you'll hear it in moments when the, when the song seems to like open up and filter up and then close back down again. It happens a lot later on. 
there, that tom that happens, that's a spotlight moment that Jack Knife was talking about. Because you can hear it. Do, 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 do. Can't hear it anywhere else. Every now and then it just gets loads more reverb and then just dies away again. It's a really lovely little trick. where I think the trombones come. Every time I listen to it, I think they come here and they don't. It's one more round. So that's where I, I put them originally and I was like, no, we can add more space here. Yeah, because they come here. More sub, more bass. Yeah, that distortion in the background, that's that, that's that bus I was telling you about. That's the, the track playing under itself in a way more intense way. And now the party has started. Exactly. Everybody's going crazy. Yeah. Is this the point where we're allowed to feel good? You're allowed to feel good now. Oh, yeah. yeah. How can you yeah. not feel good? <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. No, that's just a great thing. We yeah. feel both warm and good. Exactly. And time has achieved your goal, which yeah. is absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tapeit Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tapeit sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give tape it a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off tape it pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So we're going to talk about a couple of other songs now as well. So there's yeah. more to come from Love, Death and Dancing that we're going to look at. And anyone 
was the next song that you suggested we go into. Yeah, it's a song that means an awful lot to me. And it's a song that took me a really, really long time to get right. So... I mean, this this is an interesting song because you really, lyrically, you really open up and you really put yourself on the line with this one. Um, and you already talked to us about um, your approach to singing and yeah. you know, the way that you, you modified your approach to singing at the beginning of time and how that sounded much more aggressive initially, um, that you were kind of channeling a different kind of thing with, yeah. with your vocal. And with anyone, I mean, there's a lot of aggression at points in this, isn't there? And it's kind of almost aimed at yourself yeah it's a song i started writing in chicago um i remember i wrote it on the guitar i had the riff and i had the melody and stuff again i and i had the first verse i remember writing the first verse and going and and standing in the living room with um where my fiance at the time was and i just remember singing the first verse to her and thinking is this too much is this too comical is this like a silly lyric or is it what I'm trying to make it which is something that's like witty and poignant and self-referential the whole concept of the song is it's me waking up hungover and my wife not being hungover and it's a song written from that sort of perspective and who I am when I'm feeling like that is one that's very guilty and, and feels very weird not because my wife makes me feel like that simply just because I do for some reason and so the song is about the deeper reasons why I use things like you know a hangover to just hate myself that little bit more um, <laughs> but yeah it, so it, it felt really important to in this song which is it's like a duet between me and me and how I feel about my wife um and how lucky I feel, but also how out of my league I feel uh, when I'm around her. And just it's a song about struggling with that because, you know, being around someone who makes me feel so good about myself creates such joy and such hope and such love uh, inside of me. And then the minute I start feeling those feelings, this other part of me kicks in and goes, hang on, wait, no, I've not, I've not said you can feel like this. You've got to feel bad about yourself. That's not, this isn't nice. This isn't fair. And, and that's kind of what I wanted the song to, that's what I wanted the song to represent. So yeah, when the choruses happen, there are these huge slamming walls of noise comparatively to what the verses are, which are very delicate. There's bird song. It's hopeful. It's tinged with a lyrical sense of trepidation, but it's ultimately uh, soothing. The choruses on the other hand are, jagged rocks <laughs> and mm. knives and stabbing <laughs> yeah yeah it's a really interesting contrast between the two in effect you're telling us it, it kind of partly started out just by you singing uh, a few lines to your fiance in your living room um, but there's a, an awful lot going on musically as well um where where should we start um with anyone i mean we can start in the living room where i was playing the song to my fiance at the time because i remember I'd, i had this little room in this tiny apartment we were renting in chicago and we actually we ended up leaving it very quickly but i the first thing i did was i made my studio i got some speakers in there started working on some stuff and i remember i had a bunch of demos going around and i was working on a bunch of different ideas but the thing i wasn't doing was i just wasn't writing songs because this was before time this was before mara this was before she will lay my body on the stone like this is a song i wrote at the very beginning of the process of unlocking what Love, Death and Dancing ended up being about. And it was the first moment I kind of properly sat down with a guitar in my hands and I uh, went, all right, what's what's a song then? How do I do this again? My problem when I do write on an instrument, whether it be the piano or the guitar, is I start to 
that little voice I was talking about earlier, that little voice that wants to criticize everything I'm doing, I try and shut him up by overperforming and overplaying. And so I very often find I don't write when I'm playing an instrument because I just end up noodling or I just try and, you know, play as many notes as I can with five fingers. And this song was no different. Like the first thing I did was get, get that chord out. A guitar chord sponsored by Marks and Spencers, but it's still a lovely, lovely <laughs> guitar chord. And um, so, I mean, right now you have got your guitar on your lap. Then yes, yeah, yeah, I do. This, yeah. this is me, and this is actually. Uh, I might be lying. I might be telling the truth. I'm actually not sure, but I'm pretty certain this is the guitar that I ended up writing it on, and I ended up recording it on. I actually used this guitar a lot on the demos. This is a Fender Strat that Fender very, very kindly sent me a little while ago, and I love it. It's my favourite favorite guitar that I have in my in my armory at the moment um, but I remember thinking I'm not going to challenge myself by not you know I've got a guitar I'm going to write a song in E I'm not going to go I'm not going to overthink this I'm just going to do you know what I think is natural and so I got all of the John Mayer I could out of my fingers before I then sat down and actually wrote something and the first thing I did was I just remember rocking, like, rocking between those two chords and thinking, yeah, that's nice. There's something in it. I don't know what it is. And I wrote the opening verse, had the melody in mind and, and started thinking about it. And the concept of the song kind of came to me. And I loved this idea of writing the song from the perspective of someone who was hungover in a relationship with someone who wasn't. And so a lot of the lyrics are very obviously about that. Um, and I remember, yeah, so I wrote it from that perspective and I remember writing it, not knowing if I'd written a joke or not. I couldn't tell. So I remember standing in the living room with my uh, fiance at the time and sung, you know, woke up today in even more pain than the night before. Mm -hmm. And I liked the feeling it gave me. I'd not written a song like this before with that sort of, that sort of melody and lyric and the way that they just they fit so nicely together and that a cascading melody like that it's very poetic almost like a like a ballet i don't know it feels very very romantic very classical romantic like it's like a motif that then sings through the rest of the song so it was definitely a love song like that's what i knew i was writing and I remember getting to the end of the the verses and writing them and thinking, all right, but I'm still Jack Garrett. I've still got to do something insane. <laughs> and and so my entire body went, just do a wall of noise for the chorus. And I knew what I wanted it to sound like. I knew I had these, these emotional... In the morning I'm pinned down with ease by the weight of a look that you threw at me. It tells you it's going somewhere and then immediately that happens. And I felt really good about that. That kind of took away the possible um, pastiche feeling that I felt from the lyric that I'd had up until this point. And it turned it way more into a, oh no, I, now I know what I can do with this. And so when I ended up doing this song, this song took me ages to get right. I went through so many demos of it until I came to what the song actually sounds like now. And I knew that the verses were going to feel a certain way, but I knew the work I needed to spend was getting the chorus right. And that was the first thing I did. The first thing I did was I put, I put a little 
drum pattern down for the verses and I put a guitar take down and I put a dummy vocal down, whatever. The first thing I was like, oh no, I, I know what I need to spend time on was getting this right. And this is what it ended up sounding like. So that's just an example of the first half of that chorus, um, which comparatively to the opening of the song is a totally different world. In some ways, it it seems like Prince meets Fugazi. (laughs) That's that's brilliant. That's literally kind of exactly what I was going for. I... uh, I'd, I'd been listening to a lot of Prince and obviously like the man plays guitar like no one else and his guitar tone is always exceptional. And I knew I, I knew I loved that world. I've always loved guitars that feel far away, that are playing intricately. I've always loved that. It's the same thing I love about like the Steve Ray Vaughan recordings is his guitar is always very live. It feels very much like it's in a room. And I've all of my guitars sound like that. They always sound... Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, these are these are the guitars at the opening of the song, and my guitars always have this kind of a room on them. Yeah, where's that one doing the main riff? Here it is. That took a really long time to get to, that guitar tone. I knew I wanted something like that. And, and I absolutely admit and put my hands up to not being a good enough producer or not being a well-read enough producer engineer to be able to create that sound. And I actually, I recruited a really good friend of mine, uh, someone we've been talking about off mic, uh, Brett Cox, who I worked with a lot on the first album on Phase. Um, and he came over for a couple of days and we took the take that I'd done and we reamped it a couple of times, did a couple of interesting little tricks to it. And... Uh, turned it from sounding like very much like a DI Stratocaster going into a laptop into, you know, a really lovely, inviting, like buttery guitar. Mm. Yeah, I love that tone. Really, really love that tone. And yet, as you say, you're trying to get it to sound as live as possible in terms yeah. of yeah. The people being in the room with you you know as if you're just playing there <laughs> in front of them um and how do you how do you create that how do you, because it's it is a special it's not a special effect but it's a, it's a special thing to try and achieve because yeah. it immediately invites people in yeah it does it I, I'm not an audio purist. Like, I'm not even remotely. I've got nothing against people who are, and I've got nothing against people who aren't. I just know that I'm not one. I love the challenge of replicating a sound digitally. And I know there are people who might think that as being blasphemous, but that's what I do. And I love doing it. And I've done it ever since I was a kid. Like when I got my first producing software and started making music when I was like 18, I did not know plugins existed. I had no idea what they were. So I used, I remember getting Logic and I used everything that Logic came with. And I remember using the space designer religiously and I would design the spaces of things that I needed, not knowing that you could get other plugins that would do much better and easier jobs of of those things. I just thought that's what everyone did. So I spent years working with restrictive tools, which is unfair to say of the space designer because it's a fantastic reverb. It's a really great plugin. But I, I spent years like honing in a craft I didn't know I was honing. 
by using these somewhat restrictive elements to create sounds and spaces and things that didn't exist. Um, but with this song especially, it's in the live instruments, it's in the guitar and it's in the vocal. You can hear the softness of the room around me. Like they're both sharing the same delay. They're both sharing the same slap. They're both sharing the same room. I didn't reamp them in the same room. I didn't record them in the same room. I recorded the vocal on an SM7 and I recorded the guitar DI into my laptop. The space that I built around them is is the same world. It's not the same settings, it's not the same thing, it's just the same feeling. And put into context with everything else. Everything you're listening to is supposed to be in the same world. Yeah. And even, even the things that obviously aren't there, like the shakers are obviously very dry and quite present in the mix, um, but they don't feel distracting, they don't feel alienating. And the, and the whole purpose of that being, when you get into the, pre, uh, the pre-chorus, the build... So this is the first suggestion of a change coming, but I don't know what the change is yet. The audience doesn't know what the change is yet. It's all the same instruments, it's the same arrangement, it's the same world as before. And the next world we're about to go into is so bloody different. Just wall of noise, width, (laughs) all of the sound I could give, more vocals than we've had before, more guitars than we've had before. Um, So yeah, so like a pretty easy, basic way of presenting the core value, the core metaphor of the whole song. Mm, yeah because yeah i mean you you sing about being terrified of uh being yourself i mean that yeah. terror gets kind of uh represented by by the noise in a way yeah in so many different places i mean that that lyric mm. when that comes that's my that's my favorite bit of the whole <sighs> careful uh, album no it's one of my favorite bits of the whole album this song is track six on the record and that moment the i'm terrified of being myself moment is not only a change in the song, but it signifies a change that's coming in the rest of the album. Everything up until that point, from track one to track five, all of it's very reflective, all of it's very internalised. And then this song happens, and it's the first moment where I'm speaking openly and honestly, lyrically, about the awareness I have of my actions having consequences on other people. Then the rest of the song dissects that way of thinking. Totally different world now. How can I accept your love when I don't even trust myself? We bring in trombones that we've not heard before. We've got a stereo arpeggiator that's doing some interesting horn stuff as well. Again, these little flutterings of positivity, widespread. That's lovely. Oh, that moment gives me shivers every time. The change of the chord there, absolutely. Like, it's that's what I love in music, and that's what I'm proud I've been able to represent in my own music is changes in arrangement, changes in, in harmony to represent narrative changes. That's the moment when the whole album changes, right there in that moment. That, like I said, these flutterings of positivity. 
like birds flying over a tormented sea. It's not challenging or new imagery. It's just represented in a new way. There's a hope here within the lyric, but then there shouldn't be because the lyric is so self-effacing and it's changed by just a minor chord. There, lovely, really lovely. And we build and we build and we build. Into an unnecessary guitar solo. <laughs> it's that is my it's my favourite moment on the album. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. You mentioned Stevie Ray Vaughan, and mm-hmm. we don't necessarily think in terms of Stevie Ray when we're thinking about Jack Garrett and the music that you make. But um, you draw on so many different things. I mean, just discussing this song so far, you referred to to ballet, um, then Stevie Ray. I mean, I hear quite a bit of blues in some of the lyrical structure of the start of the song, but then yeah. it's contrasted musically yeah. with something else. And, it, and that's one of the interesting things that you do, Jack, I think, is combine worlds that don't necessarily work together or, or are combined often, um, but somehow you bring them all together to create what you create, to create Jack Garrett music, which is quite fascinating to hear. Yeah, and that's a really lovely way to put it. It's what I've always wanted to do. I think there's a blissful ignorance that I seem to have when it comes to making music. And I think a lot of people, not a lot of people, I think specifically actually a lot of journalists and critics um, see that blissful ignorance as a negative thing. And I have always seen it as a positive thing. And I think you've raised it as a point there as a positive thing. And Mm. the ignorance I'm referring to is what I said before about getting logic for the first time when I was 18 and just using it and just learning it and going, oh, cool, I get it. This is how everyone does it then. That kind of ignorance. It forces me to just go with an idea, no matter how difficult it is or no matter how easy it is, if it's working, I'll just do it. It's only until someone externally goes, well, hang on, that's not the done thing that I go, it isn't. I had no idea. And I've not, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not not trying to do that. I'm just trying to do exactly what you've said, which is make music that I make. It seems so obvious to come out of this drop and go into a guitar solo. It was the most obvious thing to me. I never questioned it. Even actually, I'm going to stop it there. Even to put in that bass synth, that mini mode, (laughs) rawr is the only way I can describe it. That was something I did in post. That was something I did when I took everything home. Because the way that we made this album was I went to California and we built these songs, but then I took all of the audio home with me and I sat in this room that I'm in right now and I did all of the post-production for about two weeks and I built everything up and I added new things and one of the things I added was that little bass thing Um, and I reamped the guitar a couple of times to make it sound like this. I'll solo it for you. So funnily enough, this is the first guitar solo I did for this song on the first demo I did didn't re-record it this is again this is di we reamped it and made it sound like this then i'm watching it here i've got three versions of it going at the same time i've got the main solo which sounds like this <laughs> and then there's another one which is doing that over in the sides just to give it a lot of clarity that's just the clean and then this underneath it and the three of them together. That's what it makes. 
And I'm, I'm watching I'm watching all of the automation happen at the same time. Because again, just thinking about what Jackknife taught me, lateral moments, I'm riding things out, I'm taking things away at other moments, all at the same time, just kind of trying to bring that. Like all of those little licks and moments, I've never put a guitar solo on a song other than the video version of Worry. I think I put a solo at the end of it. But this is the first time I'm, as a guitarist, putting my hat into the ring as lead guitar player, Jack Garrett. I've never really shown that off other than at my shows before. But like I said, I'm not doing this to show off. I'm doing this because when that drop happened and I was sitting here with my producer hat on, everything in my body went guitar solo. And that's just, that's what I did. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I mean, anyone is really interesting because of that massive dynamic spread that you've given it, you know, so it goes from you on your own some then this explosion of wall of noise, you know, it's, it's such an extreme on on the record. And then you you close the record with a song called Only the Bravest, which is pretty epic, um, yeah. but in a very different kind of way. You know, yeah. and um, the simplicity of how it starts with just your voice and then the way that you, you build it up with these claps and everything. And, and you know, it's nearly seven minutes long. Um, <laughs> what were you trying to do with this song and, and where it fits on the record and its contrast to the other songs? I, I don't know what I was trying to do other than I knew why I wrote this song and... I knew that I had something special in in what I'd written. I wrote this song for a friend of mine who had gone through a really emotionally abusive relationship. And uh, I've been in emotionally abusive relationships before, both with uh, like romantic partners and also with um, friends and people I've worked with. I, I, I've been someone that other people have felt like they need to bring down a peg or two, if that makes sense. And I wrote this song for a friend of mine who I know goes through a similar thing. I, I, I've been saying this on tour as well. I, I end the, the show with this song and I end the album with this song. And I've been saying every time I, you know, I'm singing this song for anyone who just needs to hear this right now. I've written it for my friend. I've also written it for my father-in-law who was going through some similar emotionally abusive things with some work colleagues. And, uh, and I say that at every show and then I end it by saying, you know, and I'm singing this for them. I'm singing it for you. I'm singing it for mostly for myself because I very rarely give myself the patience of a message like this, you know, and I singing it to myself like this every night holds me accountable and makes me act in some sort of self-care every time I sing it. Um, so, and that's kind of why I wrote the song. Um there's only two songs on the album that do seem to have a beginning, middle and end. Most of the other ones just kind of, they pose a point and then they stick with it for a bit because uh, one of the messages I'm trying to convey on this album is that our emotions aren't things that need fixing nor are they things that need finishing. They are, they're states of existence and I don't know why we're all so obsessed with, with fixing our emotions as if they're problems. Um, the only songs that do have a beginning, middle and an end are the songs that I've written about other people. So She Will Lay My Body on the Stone, which is a song I sing for my wife, uh, does have a beginning, middle and an end. And this song does as well. This song resolves itself at the end. Um, but I didn't know that when I was writing it. I just wrote it because I knew I needed to. And I wrote it on a um, on this little boutique synth that Roland make with a great little sound on it. And that's actually what we ended up using on the recording. Um, so this is the vocal of the song and I think you should be able to hear the keys in the background because we recorded it um, not on headphones but on speakers in Jackknife Studio. Yeah, so you can hear the... 
you can hear very faintly in the background the sound of a keyboard mm. and that's that's me playing it uh, at the same time but yeah to kind of record the best version of the song that we could we didn't do it on headphones we did it in the room and we did it live so it meant a lot of post work like the volume automation here is ridiculous that i'm looking at <laughs> um, but uh, but again, uh, like all of it being for the same purpose, which is just to create a invasive emotion uh, to come from the song and to bring that emotion to the listener. And you say that this is one of the two songs on the album where you put in a, a particular structure, a beginning, middle and end. Yeah. And did you write all of that in one go with that in mind or did they come at different points? No, this song did present itself to me in that sort of way. Um I listen to a lot of Randy Newman. I'm an avid fan of him. I think he's one of the greatest songwriters of all time, if not the greatest songwriter of, of all time. My friend also loves Randy Newman as much as I do, which is why I wrote this song in the way that I did. And these chords. Like all those diminished chords and the and the inversions of of the root that we're in, which is in C. It, you know, it's got gospel in its roots, which I know Randy Newman takes a lot of inspiration from because of his upbringing. And I, I kind of, you know, I wasn't stealing or copying or attempting to do anything like that. I was just writing a song that I knew I wanted to feel those things from. And I found that this was the best way to do it. But his songs are very, very structured like that. They tell stories. I very rarely tell stories in my song. And I wanted to tell a story with this one and the best way to tell a story, you know, which every primary school English teacher will tell you is you've got to have a beginning, you've got to have a middle, you've got to have an ending. Um, so I didn't like consciously do that, but I did just end up doing it because that's what the song wanted from me. It needed to have a journey. You know, the first verse is establishing the lead, is establishing the character as being vulnerable and being an easy target. The second verse talks more about the reasons why they're an easy target. And the third one says, but beyond all of that, I will do everything I can to defend you from people who think you're an easy target. You know, a nice beginning, middle and end to this one small part of my relationship with one of my best friends. Mm. And uh, in terms of articulating that musically as well, what did you decide to do and how did you do it? Well, we tried to keep it as simple as possible, just adding uh, lots of ethereal moments. So so I did this one with Jackknife in, in LA and the first bit was getting the takedown, was making sure that we had the keys and the vocal like sounding right to have the performance of that. <laughs> And that took us a while. That took us about a day of getting those, um, of getting that take right. It was really stressful because we knew that we were dealing with something that was quite meaningful. And we knew we were dealing with something that has to be emotional. And when you're writing something that has obvious emotion in it, the worst thing that you can do is pander to that emotion. You just have to kind of try and keep writing and or creating and producing in the way that seems to tap into that emotion, you know, not go chasing it. If you go chasing it, it, it becomes obvious and you end up scaring the emotion away, I find at least. Um, but what we ended up doing was just adding whispers of other whispers of other voices with whispers of other thoughts um this song is so about intrusive thinking as so much of the album is but it's about being targeted by other people so there's other representations of my voice in it we've got a an octave down vocoder that's just doubling the vocal the whole time just tiny little subtle things that create a wider world 
and create a different sort of intimacy to not just focus heavily on the on voice and keys but instead to create an intimacy that can have sparseness and can have width and can have um or, or to create that intimacy from more of an ethereal world. So we ended up doing a lot of that later on with, there's loads of drones that we put in. Um, just there when I paused, this guy came in. Really quiet. Moments like that, there's this guy. On top of that, I played my first ever harmonium and pump organ which is this stuff. So this is a two pedal pump organ that you pedal with your feet to create air that then goes through all the pipes and you hold the chords down with your fingers and creates all of this kind of stuff. We were just building a bed for this song to lay in. The trickiest moment though, and the bit that I had the most fun doing was the ending, which took me a long time to put together. I ended the song by, um, I took the speech that my father-in-law gave at my wife and my wedding and I put it over the ending and I found a, this really beautiful chord progression that happens once in the song earlier and I brought it back, looped it round and just created this, again, just these waves of emotion that start to overlap and you don't know where the, the wave that you were watching ends because it gets taken over by the next one, which gets taken over by the next one. Wow. So that is actually your father-in-law giving that speech at the end. I did yeah, wonder. Yeah, it is. It's the, uh, where is he? He's down here. So is that taken from a wedding video then? Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look me in the eye and tell me you love me. There he is. And I had to cut it, as you can hear here. I had to cut it and put it together to get it in I time with the song. Your eye, says he. What he ended up saying was so poignant and so loving. It was the perfect thing to, it's the perfect thing to end the album with. Mm. I love it. I absolutely love it. Again, it was, it's like the guitar solo at the end of uh, anyone. It was so obvious when I realised that that's what it needed to be. Um, I had this space. I had it originally without the speech in it. So the outro initially um, just sounded like this. Which was, you know, it's emotional and you can hear the... Um, That's the loop that I took from earlier in the song and played it round. And you add in the pump organs that are doing all of this stuff. And I've got this um, this amazing plugin from uh, from Good Hertz, uh, the Wow controller, which um, is a, like a tape emulator, and that gets more intense as the song goes on. You know, it's nice. It's lovely. But it was missing something, and the thing it was missing was was him with this absolutely gorgeous speech that took him <laughs> no time to write and ten seconds to say. Yeah, but then in a way, maybe, you know, these thoughts are the thoughts of somebody who's been ruminating on this for yeah. quite some time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it all comes out at that moment. Yeah, it's and he's so happy with it as well. He, he cried when he heard it for the first time, which is Don't forget your father such a compliment. That's my favourite bit in the speech. He says at the very end, he looked at me and he went, don't forget your father-in-law, however, and the whole room just erupted in laughter. And so that's what you hear. <laughs> Don't forget your father-in-law. And now you've gone and written him a song. <laughs> and I've gone and written him a song, so I yeah. haven't forgotten him and I never will. Yeah. <laughs> 
Amazing, because, I mean, there are other sounds within this song. I mean, they're the horns that we just heard a snippet of, um, and you do have percussion through it, a kind of clapping thing. Yeah. So it's not as simple as it might seem, in a way. No, and also, again, it being simple is is a ruse it's not it's an incredibly complicated bed of music there's a lot of ethereal stuff happening but the rule applies that i've applied to everything else which is the one that jackknife taught me which is there are spotlights and you can't give one spotlight to two things you have to share the spotlight amongst everything that you're doing and that means showing things off when they need to be shown off and though like i said there's the bed that's there is very ethereal and it's very wide um it took a long time to orchestrate that. When we were making it, um, Jackknife wanted to have, he wanted to record all these different notes and then he wanted to put them together on a fader board, like on a mixing board and then and play the faders like a keyboard and do live takes of putting that in between. And that's what we ended up pretty much doing. We didn't get the faders, we just ended up automating it with a volume controller instead on, on Logic. But we took these drones and we like just created beds with them and played them into each other and then made sense of them, made chords from them by putting the the organs on top of them. Like it sounds very simple, sounds very easy, but it's incredibly complicated what we ended up doing. Um, If I put that into perspective in the song, the drone choir, which is what we ended up calling it, sounds like this. So you can hear, there's two notes at the moment, just a fifth, the and the da that was in there as well. And those are some new notes that we made. And again, we made them all from, it was the same signal, the same drone that we then pitch shifted ourselves. And again, we, you know, playing the faders like a keyboard. But then adding, if I go back and play that exact same bit with the organs on it and the rest of the song, you can hear how we made chords from it. and the trombones. And I can add the, uh, I'll add the vocals. To begging Even So it's it, it's a very a very simple appearing thing that needed so much thought and care and attention to detail to create just the right sense of emotion behind everything. Because if you if I played all of that again and took the drone out of it and took the the ethereal stuff out of it, there there would be moments of silences. You know, if I just play mm. from here. Your head is full of doubts and fears. Totally different. And then I put it back I in. I know that she's winning. And you don't it just ties everything together. And that's what a lot of the challenge behind the song was, was adding moments like that that end up gluing everything. And without them, it does seem to, it feels empty and it feels naked, but not in a way that's vulnerable, naked in a way that feels bare. Putting those elements in just 
just like I said, it, it, it ties it together, it glues it together. For me, at least, it gives it a way more determined sense of purpose. Um, and it's not showing off. It's just there. It's just doing the job that it was put there to do. It's not trying to attempt to do any anything other than that, um, as opposed to something like the drums, which was a later choice I ended up putting in when I came here, when I came back home and I started doing everything in the room for the second chorus, I it needed something. Stay on the corner. It needed something different. In a hurricane. And I ended up putting these in. Reaching and I wasn't sure if that was adding too much. I didn't know if it was over-egging the pudding, but it felt like it was just, an, again, an additional piece of glue just to really tighten it up, to really make sure that there was nothing that the audience could peel off when they were listening. It's a, it was a very difficult song to put together because it needed proper orchestral arranging. And I didn't have an orchestra, I just had me. So <laughs> Yes, um, but you did have the the board that Jackknife Lee had yeah, of and, course, yeah. and, and and the assembled things that you'd that you could you know use within that board exactly. as your live mix yeah. taking place um i'm just wondering to wrap things up whether we could talk through the build of only the bravest um kind of quickly i mean it's hard to condense yeah. a 7 minute track into a few <laughs> simple moves um but just to, it would give us that sense of completion possibly yeah sure i can play from the ending so i can play out the outro and give you from where I stop singing. Because that's the thing, at the end of the second verse, from that moment when the drums came in and, and um, sorry, the second chorus, uh, and the drums come in, after that, it goes back to just me and keyboard. Um, everything kind of fades out. That drone I was telling you about disappears and you can hear it. You can hear it's gone. The only thing that's staying in is the organ. Um, there. That's the only drone that's still there or drone-like. Mm arrangement that's there and, I will be right and then playing with the tension creating these moments you know creating those moments where everything kind of builds and gets quite intense and then cut to the silence the silence is just as important as the noise we're only the And then this was lovely. This was a really lovely thing that we did. Just creating a new... Something I really love doing, even if there are... Even if questions are answered, I like proposing new questions um, at the end and knowing that there's not time to answer them. And this question, this is a harmonic question of uncertainty and uh, uneasy ground uh, just by introducing some new notes that we haven't had for the whole song, uh, which sounds like this. Yeah, only the brave Just a lovely little question from the bass, like, are we finished? I guess we are. And again, it could end here, it could all fade out and disappear, but I knew there was more story to tell. And the story, like I said, it was my father-in-law with his speech. Mm. And so the things we've got playing here, I've got a loop of the organs, just playing between two notes. And this was a take I had to cut together, so I've just got a loop that I faded in and out of each other for one of them, and then the other one I've just taken notes from before and stitched them into places I needed them. And then the whole thing um, is being backed up by this riff that's fading in. Which is the trombones and the 808 bass. 
So that's fading in and getting more intense the whole time. I hope that today will is the speech and then the other more ethereal, the drone choirs in there as well. That's starting to creep in. Really faintly, you can hear that in the background. And again, this was similar to time. This was just a game. How long can I hold this for? How long can I build this for? How many times should it go around? When should I stop it? It could stop this time, but it doesn't. And you can hear it starting to break up in the audio. The audio starts dropping out, starts getting more intense. The dropouts get quicker. In the background as well is this motif from earlier. I really wanted to put a bow on the album, but I wanted the bow to feel more like a question than an ending. And then just one last one. A clear and decisive end with no audio dropping out, no, um, you know, no post effects, no unnecessary elaborate production, just three chords to end Love, Death and Dancing. Amazing. Fantastic to have these songs unraveled in this way, Jack. There are a couple of questions we always ask our guests with regard to their music and their experience in music. Um, and it would be great to hear what you've got to say um, in response to these questions. One of them is a piece of advice. We've learned about how much you've learned through this whole experience and how you learned a lot from Jackknife Lee in terms of how to approach your music. Um, is that the best advice you've had or is there advice that you would pass on to any anybody who's working? I mean, I would pass that advice on to anyone just because it helped me so much and I can only ever pass on what I can also co-sign. And uh, that's a piece of advice I would gladly encourage people to, to stick to or to at least adhere. Um, the thing I kind of harken back to is what I said earlier about just being critical of your own work. Um, the only person I can truly challenge is myself. I don't really have the right to challenge other people because I don't know what their struggles are. I don't know what their experiences are. However, I believe I can hold myself to a certain level of accountability and I believe I can hold myself up to a certain standard and a certain professionalism. I believe that in doing that, that might encourage other people to hold themselves up to that certain level as well. Um, something that I, I try and encourage people to do who do ask me for advice on stuff like that is, is that if you... I only make music I want to listen to. I don't make music I don't want to listen to because what's the point in doing that? And I f have found that when I, people have been critical of my work, they're often critical about the things that I'm also critical about. And I could have changed those things because I was critical about them. So I try and listen to myself as much as I can. It's a dangerous line, though, because I often then kind of succumb to over-criticism. And that's very dangerous because that can become preventative of good work. But it's important to practice the act of being self-critical. Only in the act of practicing it will you get any better at it. Um, yeah, I think that's the only thing I can rightfully say. Yeah, no, that seems that seems very wise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we also ask about kit. So, yeah. um, I mean, you've mentioned all sorts of different aspects to the kit that you use. Um, is there any thing that you can't live without any one piece of equipment that you would always take with you and you did mention about this one microphone that you 
like to use? <laughs> well, yeah, it's the one I'm talking to you on now. This is the SM7. I recorded all of Phase on this and I recorded most of the vocals of Love, Death and Dancing on this album. Uh, oh, sorry, on this microphone. But this is just the first microphone I got. The SM7 is an absolute like industry standard. It's a brilliant mic. I do take it with me when I'm traveling, just, you know, in case I do get taken by an idea. I mean... <sighs> I've recently started taking my pocket piano with me everywhere. I, I really had to search to find that. And I used it a lot on Love, Death and Dancing, and I'm using it in my tour at the moment. I'm using it in the show that I do for this album. The pocket piano is incredible. Um, a very limiting and a very restrictive synth. It just does like four things and you can't make it do anything else other than that. And I really respect hardware that forces you into a certain corner. I don't think it does it to bludgeon you there. I think it does to challenge you there. Um, I like synths that expect me to work hard to make good things come out of them. So a lot of the synths that I have do end up kind of doing that. I've been using the, the Behringer D-Mod a lot as well, which is a really, really great little synth. Um, I've only recently started to really dive into like hardware synths and hardware in general. Um, so yeah, any synth that doesn't want me to use it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But maybe, I mean, you've mentioned that you have moved around a lot and as part of that, it means that you have to start and fresh and start anew and build a, a studio again or a, a working environment that you can use. So yeah. you, you probably haven't acquired too much gear that you can't carry from one place to another. But at the same time, when you set yourself up, how long does it take to set up? And <laughs> do you get yourself going and then expand or what do you do? I, it takes a while. I try and force it to happen very quickly so that I can get working. So I've got two friends, one of which I've mentioned, the other one I haven't, um, Brett Cox and Ollie Wayton, uh, two engineering friends of mine who, very fortunately, the last two times I have moved into a new room, I've called them both up and gone, hey, I'm in a new space. Uh, do you want to come in and let's be nerds together? And they always say yes. They always come in and help me arrange a studio in a small space. They like the challenge of it. I love the challenge of it. We kind of revel in it together. Um it takes a while to like measure things out, make sure that all of my stuff is going to fit in a room. But it, it, I'd like for it to just be a couple of days of work and then I can start making stuff. At the moment, however, because of what's going on uh, with the world right now, I've taken all of the gear from my live show that was in my locker. I, I managed to get there just before everything shut down and I was forced to stay inside anyway. Um, I managed to get everything and bring it to my house at home and Ollie and me spent a couple of days putting it together. So currently in front of me, I actually have my live rig so I can do some streaming and start doing some shows for people who are kind of looking for some distractions and looking for some entertainment at the moment. But I've literally just got my live show here in front of me, which is really fun. It, I, I've Annoyingly, I've set myself another goal uh, for every studio I ever move into from this point onwards is it has to be able to do this. And this was not easy. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very exciting. And I'm very tempted to mm. get you to, to play something live to see us out. Um, uh, but uh, have a think if you're willing to do that. But something yeah, sure. I wanted to just um, delve into just a tiny bit is this musical background of yours, because I know that you started very young and you mentioned in terms of your personal insecurities, how you know you were praised a lot as, as a youngster. Um, yeah. And that was partly because you were a bit of a musical prodigy in some way, weren't you? I, I mean, uh, prodigy is a very difficult word to hear when I've like definitely disagree with it um, <laughs> like I, I I don't know I think I was um, I am talented and I have to be able to say that and I do believe that I am um, 
I think when I was young, I think a lot of people saw that I could play multiple instruments and maybe gave me more, maybe congratulated me more than they should have for, for doing something that when I was a kid was very easy, I guess, for me to do. I could pick up an instrument and I could figure out how to play it. I could figure out the basics of it, but I wasn't, um, you know, virtuistic on multiple instruments. Uh, I was just good at picking things up and figuring them out. But it's something I didn't think about when I was young. It's something I just did. And it's something that has so benefited me greatly now as an adult, because I now have the confidence to pick up instruments, knowing that ultimately they should be played. So I could be able to play them. And that's what I do when I pick up a new instrument. I know that it's playable. So I watch other people play it and then I mimic the way that they do it. And more often than not, that's the right way to play it. So I end up just kind of doing that. It's the reason why when I was a kid, I could play the bass in a way that wasn't a guitarist playing the bass. It's the way that bassists play the bass, because I was watching videos of... um, um, you know, like listening to Jaco Pistorius and watching videos of of him doing the the chicken song or whatever it's called. I mean, I was just thinking, what tuition did you have? Did you did you start on a particular instrument and then expand to the other instruments? Where did you find these other instruments? Yeah, no, I, I started on piano. I've, I've got an uh, older brother and sister, and we we all played piano when we were kids because our mum's a pianist and she comes from a family of them, and it was very important to her that we all kind of did that, and so I did that begrudgingly, and. Um, my ears were very good when I was a kid, and they are now. But um, and and I trust them more than I trust my eyes. You know, my my piano teacher would sit me down, and she'd play the song that we were then going to spend the next couple of weeks learning, and I would uh, just pick it up by listening to what she was playing, and then try and play it by memory, which I thought was fine. And then she would get annoyed because I wasn't reading the music, so she'd put a book over my hand so I couldn't look at my fingers. I had to look at the um at the score at the piece of music which I hated. I hated it. Uh, so yeah, like piano was a big thing when I was a kid. And then when we were like 14, we were allowed to pick another instrument that we would want to play. I think my, my sister picked the flute and my brother picked the cello and I picked the trombone. Um, so I played piano first, then started playing the trombone. And then I started to play the guitar. Well, actually through that whole time, I was playing a bit of guitar. And that's the thing that I really loved because it wasn't structured. I wasn't being taught how to do it. I was teaching myself. And I don't know why, but I reacted, I responded better to the challenge of learning myself how to play an instrument than someone else teaching me how to play the trombone. Like I got better at the trombone when I started playing the trombone in a ska band when I was like 15, because I was playing it in a way that I genuinely really enjoyed rather than just, you know, playing terrible covers of My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion, <laughs> which I remember was in one of my easy to play trombone books. <laughs> <laughs> and it is important to be doing something that is enjoyable because that's the whole point, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Really. That is the whole point. Yeah. But it's interesting that, you know, you you kind of got to get, have a go at different groups, you know, so piano, guitar, trombone, you know, yeah. strings, brass. Yeah, and um, it, it, very- helped, it, it helps me as an arranger now. Like I know how to arrange for a horn section and I know how to, you know, write appropriately for the piano and for the guitar and for drums and stuff like that because I think about how I would want to play them. So it does, it really helps me as, as someone who visualises music in the way that I do. You know, and I and I spent my entire life learning how to make music by listening to people who did the same thing, like Stevie Wonder and Quincy Jones and Paul Simon and stuff like that. So I very fortunately found myself making a adolescent concoction of just how to make music the way that I make it now. Um, it's very, very helpful. Didn't know that that's what was happening at the time, but now I'm very, very grateful for it. 
how brilliant it has been to be able to talk to you in this way, despite being uh, many miles apart. But we feel as if we've been welcomed into your studio. No, so we're with you now and we can almost see and touch all the equipment <laughs> around you and, and see how you've been able to both create with it and then take it apart. And thank you so much for taking all the time out today, Jack, for doing this. It's very much appreciated. Of course. And thank you so much for, for having me. Honestly, it's really, really enjoyable to be able to talk about this stuff every now and then. So. Excellent. No, that's good news. Um, and normally we play a selection from the album, something that we haven't necessarily talked about. Um, but I am tempted to get <laughs> you to, to illustrate this by your amazing new live setup that you've got ready to go. Uh, because I love the idea of you putting uh, hands to string or to keyboard yeah. <laughs> um, for our benefit. Absolutely. No, is that course. possible? No, of course it is. I tell you what, we started with it so I could play a little bit of Mara for you if you wanted. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. So now we're going to have a very special treat, Jack Garrett performing live from his studio on his new live setup. Thank you so much, Jack. Really, really appreciate it. This is Mara. You have come here in the silence. In the breath between the rain The storm distorts the garden's beauty And leaves me wondering again Distracting you is not the answer If the question you lay It's not how to design something But why build it anyway? Oh, I can see you more I see you standing there You're with me in the dark Christians working through the air 